0: Happy Holidays from the DSR Network. We are deeply appreciative of our members and the year that we've had. To celebrate the holiday season, we are offering a 50% discount on either your first month or first year of membership. Members enjoy an ad-free listening experience, bonus content for virtually all of our shows, an invitation to the members-only Slack community and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of December, you can take 50% off the membership price for the first month or for the first year. Visit the buy and enter code DSRHOLIDAY at checkout. That's the dsrnetwork.com buy and code DSRHOLIDAY. Thank you very much for your support. Happy holidays from all of us at the DSR Network. As we all spend the holidays with our families, We're bringing you some of the best episodes from the network on some of the biggest events of the year. We hope you enjoy this look back at 2023, and please, look forward to another year of Deep State Radio. 9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23, This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm David Rothkopf, your host, coming to you from stormy Washington, D.C. It's always stormy in Washington, but today the weather is stormy, and we haven't Talked about politics per se in a while, and I thought this would be a good day to, to do it. And so we've got two great people to discuss the state of U.S. politics with. Um, the first uh, is our friend Jen Rubin of The Washington Post, also the host of a great new podcast. If you listen to two podcasts a week, please also listen to that one. If you only listen to one per week, well, you're lucky Jen's here. Uh, But uh, that's uh, uh, Jen Rubin's Green Room. Welcome, Jen.
1: Thanks. It's nice to be here. Nice to be, uh, you know, it's like a busman's holiday now. When I'm on other podcasts, I kind of notice different things. Oh, that's how you do it. Oh, that was good. I'll have to comment. Copy that. will not
0: be too much of that here, I'm sure. Uh, But in any event, we are also joined by our friend, uh, political uh, savant, Uh, the man who called it right, and the purveyor of hopium himself, Simon Rosenberg. How are you doing, Simon?
2: I'm well. It's good to be here with both of you.
0: Uh, It's good to have you here. So, you know, it does seem a little bit perverse that it's July. Uh, The election is not until next November. Um, But when you sort of back time it, and like six months, five months, there's, we're going to start primaries for the Republicans. And next month, we're going to start debates for the Republicans. Uh, so this is upon us. Um, and so, I, you know, I thought it warranted a look uh, at what do we know now that that we didn't know six months ago um, and uh, insights uh, in that general zip code. But let me start with that one, Jen. What do we know now that we didn't know six months ago?
1: Well, six months ago, I knew that Ron DeSantis was an awful candidate, but now everyone else knows. So I think the, the notion that this guy who's a thug, a bully, lacking charisma, lacking a personality, has an obsession with these niche issues was going to be the solution to Donald Trump always seemed kind of daft to me. And, uh, there seems to be a building consensus that that is the case. I think, um, what we're also seeing is that at least initially, the indictments are not uh, shaking Republicans out of their cult-like trance and have not yet abandoned Donald Trump. However, I think there's still a difference between getting indicted, if you will, for issues that are not central to January 6th and getting indicted um, for January 6th and moreover going to trial and actually having these things become more real. So I don't entirely give up hope that um, there'll be some realistic uh, fervor which strikes the Republican Party. I'm not optimistic, but it's not inconceivable. Um, and I think the other thing we know that we didn't perhaps know six months ago, or maybe we knew it nine, 10 months ago was that the Democrats have going for them. I think what is the most powerful issue in uh, maybe half a century, which is abortion, that that issue is going to continue to animate. It has animated. It made a difference in the midterms. It made a difference in Wisconsin. Um, I... uh, was among those who said this was going to be earth-shaking. A lot of the pundits, who are generally men and generally don't understand the emotional content of this issue, kind of poo-pooed it. But I think that is going to continue to ripple through the electorate and going to perhaps make for a somewhat of a realignment in American politics.
0: Interesting, Simon. What do are, what are, what are you, you? I mean, you're a savant, so <laughs> you probably know how the whole thing's going to right.
2: But, what, what are you doing? Jen just covered a lot of really important ground, so I'll just add a couple things. One is we know, I think Joe Biden's case for re-election has gotten much stronger this year. Um, the economy is doing very well. Putin is stumbling in Ukraine. The investments are beginning to become real and material, and that strategy looks like it's paid off. We're seeing a decline of people coming to the border. We've seen murder rates come way down. I just think that the The case that he has for reelection has gotten much, much stronger in recent months. The second thing, building off what Jen said, is that I think the um, any hope that the Republican Party would somehow find a lane that wasn't crazy is also just not available to them anymore. I mean, their two leading candidates are, you know, in an incredible competition for being among the worst politicians in American history and truly awful people. It's just it's incredible what's happened to the Republican Party and any way that they have of kind of putting lipstick on that pig and presenting themselves as a reasonable party next year, it's just not there. And the opposition and um, and fear of MAGA has been the, the driving force of the last three elections. It looks like it's going to be the driving force of this election, too, whether it's DeSantis or Trump. And then finally, consistent with what Jen talked about in terms of abortion, is that you know, we've had really good elections this year. I mean, this this is part of what the savant part of the reason that Tom Bonnier and I got it right in 2022 is that we were looking at data outside of just polling. We were looking at actual elections and voter registration and things that were more connected to voting than having opinions. Well, those measures this cycle are all going in the right direction for us. And we're taking we're not just doing well but we're winning in places that are in core Republican areas. Colorado Springs, Jacksonville, Florida, these are Republican cities. They've been Republican for decades. We took stuff away from them. We took away the Supreme Court seat in Wisconsin. And so we've seen, I think, three things, David. One is Biden's case for re-election has gotten stronger. Their case that they're a reasonable parties has gotten much weaker. And we've seen continued very strong performance on the ground for Democrats, all very encouraging stuff for us as we head into next year.
1: And to Simon's last point, we are also now seeing that there will be more abortion items on the ballot as well. And so that's going to help drive the electorate out. And when you talk about a shift it wasn't just that Democrats won that swing seat in the Wisconsin Supreme Court election. It was that they won it by 10 points. There are never elections that won by 10 points in Wisconsin. This is as close as you get to a 50-50 state. If you win by 2,000 votes, it's a landslide. So it shows you the magnitude, the intensity of the interest. You know, for decades now, Republicans have voted on the Supreme Court. You could never get Democrats to do it. And now in a way, um, the very radical, frankly, and I would say illegitimate Supreme Court has handed that issue back to the Democrats on abortion. But also I think on the very nature of who do you want running the country? A bunch of guys who get wined and dined by billionaires and think constitutional law was set in the 19th century, the guys who never met a gun they weren't willing to sell to a six-year-old, or do you want a modern pluralistic America? And that's kind of the frame of reference you have here. Yeah,
0: Simon, let me pick up on that because we've had in the past couple of weeks three more rather extreme decisions um, from the Supreme Court on affirmative action on student loans and Uh, this bizarre decision on uh, uh, the ability uh, to withhold service to LGBTQ people um, or or couples, uh, which were based, you know, I mean, Jen typically is is being, you know, overly nice to the Republicans (laughs) and saying that this is based on the 19th century. Some of it's based on the 17th century. Some of it's based on the 14th century. And some of it's based on, You know, legal systems in outer space someplace because it's completely, um, made up. I've noticed, you know, on even on MSNBC and some dem friendly platforms, there are people going, well, these decisions, it's not like abortion. But if you were paying a student loan and then you're going to pay more, this is going to be on your mind. If you are part of the LGBTQ community and next year the Supreme Court is gunning for your right to get married. Um, it's going to be on your mind. Uh, and uh, if you're applying to college, you have kids applying to college, um, affirmative action may be on your mind. And, you know, there are other things in the hopper. You know, it's not, not unlikely that they'll be going after uh, things like birth control. Do you think that the Supreme Court is going to be on the ballot?
2: I think it just reinforces this basic sense that, you know, that a majority of the country has, that they've just gone too far. I mean, that the Republican Party can't be trusted with power, that they've been overtaken by extremism and extremists in every possible way. And that that, it, that sense and that sensibility is already in the electorate, right? It's been driving the vote now since 2018. And so every time the Republicans confirm the people's sense that they this, you know, because the whole, for them to be successful next year, there has to be a sense of, with many voters who had voted against them potentially in three consecutive elections, that, Hey, maybe they moderated a little bit. Maybe they've gotten religion. They sort of figured it out. Every time something like this happens, they get further and further away from the electorate. They push more and more people to a place that the, you know, their vote is going to be unavailable to them. And so I think that everything that's happened to the Republican party this year has pushed them further and further away from the electorate. They need to win. Remember in 2022, we improved our standing in most of the battleground states. We did better in Arizona, Colorado, Georgia, Michigan, Minnesota, um, and New Hampshire and Pennsylvania than we did in 2020. So the battleground got harder for the Republicans, and then this year, they're doing—they're giving all of this ammunition to us to make the case that these guys just can't be trusted with power. It's why every day in every way, I would much rather be us than them. I mean, I think that, you know, we have the opportunity here. And what I believe, and David, we've talked about this before, that Democrats need to not just be planning to try to win the election, but to get to 55 percent, to have it be a blowout election. It has to be seen as a clear repudiation of this radical politics. And we've got to plan the way campaigns work, is you've got to plan for that. You've got to try to expand the electorate increase the youth vote win back some of the hispanic vote use the issue of abortion to go deeper and deeper into the republican coalition continue to work and collaborate with never maga never trump or republicans and give them a place at our table so that we can bring more and more of them into our into our into a coalition and i think that if we can do all those things we can do what we did in wisconsin remember we got to fifty six percent in Wisconsin. We got to fifty nine percent in Colorado last year, fifty-seven in Pennsylvania, fifty-five in Michigan, fifty-four in New Hampshire. We're already performing at the upper end of what's possible in in a tough psych, in a tough set of political circumstances. My biggest fear for the Democrats is that we play it safe instead of trying to really go for a big win. Joe Biden went shot the moon shot for the moon legislatively in 21 and 22, he's got to do it politically in 23 and
0: 24. Yeah, Jen, you know, th- I, I I agree with Simon. Simon and I have talked about this before. Um, I think Simon on a prior podcast uh, coined the phrase or did not offer it as a phrase, but the idea of 55 in 24, the idea that that's got to be the goal. But it's especially important if we set aside for a moment—we'll come back to it—the presidential election, and recognize how tough the senatorial campaign is going to be, and how consequential that is going to be if you want to rein in that court, uh, have some oversight, continue to appoint Biden judges if he wins reelection, et cetera. So, what's your what's your view on on that? Is the Senate just you know out of reach, or? Can we follow Simon's strategy and actually uh, confound the the pundits?
1: I think we can hold the Senate. Um, We ran the table in 2022, remember? Everyone said, oh, no, you're going to lose all these seats. And yes, there are very tough seats. There is Ohio. There is Montana. There is Wisconsin. But we also have running in those seats seats. Sherrod Brown, John Tester, um, you know, uh, Tammy Baldwin. These are people who know how to win in red or purple states and have long records. And they're going to have a presidential, uh, candidate, um, at the top of the ticket that they can identify with rather than run from. So I think I'm, um, uh, perhaps more sanguine than I should be about. Keeping the Senate. What I'm a little stumped about is how we might expand the Senate map, where else we might go. I'm really curious to hear what Simon would say. You know, uh, do you spend money again in Texas? Um, somehow I'd rather spend money in Texas than in Florida, I guess. Um, but I don't know where the pickup opportunities um, would be there. I think the House um, has a potential to be a blowout. I think the current House, their behavior is so atrocious. And because House members are more closely tied to the presidential uh, candidate, there's a greater, um, you know, sort of coattail effect there, that the House, if successful in a 55% on the presidential election, the House will be fine. But I'm really curious, Simon, where you think there might be some pickup opportunities or, you know, uh, switches in the in the Senate race?
2: I don't know that we can expand. I mean, we'll keep our eye on Texas. Remember, I mean, Biden got within five points last time. It's going to be hard. Um, but let's, you know, Cruz is deeply unpopular in Texas. He's a bad candidate. He's just a bad guy. And so I I think that's a very different I think Abbott has always overperformed in Texas in the other elections when Abbott's not on the ballot. Remember, Cruz only won by two and a half points last time. Right. So, you know, I, I think we can keep an eye on that. I don't think we should rule it out. But I do think the House, I'm very optimistic about the House and I'm optimistic about the presidential election. And I think that, you know, I think for me, I have this mantra now when I give my talks, which is that, Democrats got into such a defensive crouch and we got so down on ourselves that we have to practice and exercise being on offense and playing, you know, and being expansive and expanding our coalition. And I like to say these three simple things, right? Joe Biden has been a good president. The country is better off. And the Democratic Party is strong. I mean, we're the strong party right now. We're unified. We're raising tons of money. We're running really good campaigns they're an unbelievable historical mess, right? And we have to, I think, approach this cycle with a very different mindset than we did last time, which is about expansion, growth, power, strength, not defense, fear, uncertainty, doubt, right? Which is a lot what drove our politics last time. And I think the most important thing we have to do is to defend, is to help Joe Biden make his case on the economy. I mean, that, to me, we know from polling that people don't know what Joe Biden's done. And when they're informed about it, it really improves his standing. We've seen this in poll after poll, focus group after focus group. This is clearly understood. Our family has the ability to help him be very loud in the next coming months to tell this story. And it can make an enormous difference in this election. If we can improve his performance on the economy, even by two or three points, David, Jen, right? It could make an enormous difference in this election. It's the only thing the Republicans have that's still connecting them with voters. And if we take that away, they've got nothing as they head into 2024.
0: Yeah, especially since uh uh the the Biden record is good and the Republican record is actually <laughs> bad. Um well let's let's um uh switch over for a moment to the presidential um uh uh field right now. We touched upon it at the beginning. Uh, I believe today, as we're recording this, uh, uh, Jack Smith has has sought that the trial on the documents case um, begins in December. Now I don't know whether he will actually achieve that, but it does give us a sense that there will be real significant overlap in perhaps in the early stages of the primaries, with with that case, which is very ugly and has some Republicans extremely uncomfortable, uh, and then of course the New York case starts next March. Um, you mentioned earlier, Jen, that you know Trump continues to do well in the polls. I have to admit, I've been in a small group, and by a small group, I mean all alone, in thinking that. Um, you know ultimately this was going to have a take a toll on him that ultimately being accused of violating us national security putting it at risk multiple times in egregious ways was ultimately going to take a toll and that there would be republicans coming after him on that also you know as we've seen even in the past few days when he's put into a corner on these things he goes nuts on truth social i mean really like like, you know, lock this guy up uh, on on psychiatric grounds. And, and of course, we've got the Fulton County case seemingly likely to come down on his head um, in August, and potentially more charges from Jack Smith on the documents case, and then on January 6th also. Is it is he really that Teflon coated? Is his base of support really so uh, oblivious to these things, uh, or is it just the you know the construct of the Republican Party that you know there's thirty percent of people who would literally follow him off a cliff, and that's enough to defeat a big field, um, or or do you see potential cracks in the foundation of of you know the MAGA movement?
1: It was interesting when he was indicted in Florida, you saw a surprisingly large number of Republicans. Um, not only Republicans were actually running against him, but people like Bill Barr, people, um, you know, who had served in Congress who re- respected Republicans come out and say, this is serious stuff. This is no joke. Um, you can't condone, um, this kind of, uh, behavior. Now that kind of evaporated because of course, the attention span of American people is about five and a half seconds. But when they're presented with that day after day after day, and Americans get to hear that um, tape, you know, we think everyone in America has heard that recording, um, where he's joking about having confidential documents. They haven't. Um, the, the very small percentage of the public is that tuned in to um, the extent of his crimes. I think, at, certainly in the general Electric. Uh, electorate that's going to make a difference whether it's enough to knock him off in the primary the central problem they have is that the only people so far in the race who are willing to go after him are not really electable in the Republican party chris christie is you know conducting a seminar on how to attack this guy and what to say and how to do it but he is so deeply unpopular in the Republican party he doesn't have an opportunity I think the only combination that I think is remotely feasible is that Christie or others take a toll on him. The trials come out, um, they knock him down a bit, and then someone perhaps who is not in the race right now, like a Brian Kemp um, or a, a Glenn Youngkin, um, not people I would vote for, but at least this side of sanity would, um, quote, be drafted into the race at a later time. I don't think that's inconceivable. Do I think it's likely? No. Is it conceivable? Yes. But this is the problem that the Republicans made for themselves. You know, everyone is saying, well, how do they get themselves out of this? I don't know. Go ask them. They're the ones who got behind a serial criminal. Um, They're the ones who have refused to recognize reality for however many years. So, yeah, they got a real problem. And I don't know how they're going to get themselves out of it. Maybe they won't. And maybe... You know, we're think- overthinking this. It may be easier for some of these people just to take a thrashing in one election than to go up against Donald Trump. That's how timorous. That's how cowardly, how spineless these people are. That it's easier for them to say, okay, well, maybe I'm not up this year as a senator, or maybe a house guy says I'm in a totally gerrymandered seat, so no one's going to knock me off. So we lose the presidency again. Well, that'll just get rid of Trump and then we'll. Go forward another
0: year. That's possible, too. Yeah, that I'm okay. I'm okay with that. Um, (laughs) Yeah, um, me too. uh, uh, Simon, uh, it's the same question. I would add that, you know, it's been reported in the past 24 hours, again, as of this recording, that um, uh, Trump's raised $35 million since the indictments. Now, A, I don't know whether to believe it. B, um, he's funneling a lot of that towards his legal defense uh uh and uh uh you know see um i'm not sure whether that you know has a has a consequence when you get to dealing with issues like the ones we're talking about. What do you think? Well it
2: goes it's I want to go back to and draw on some of the earlier part of the conversation, which is that I think that the Republicans now have this very difficult situation this cycle where there are going to be two things in the background that will be playing out over the next year and a half that will be like anchors around their on their you know on their feet dragging them down one of them is going to be Trump's ongoing malfeasance and legal problems that even if he's not the nominee this stuff is still going to be going on reminding everybody about what's happened to the Republican Party and the second one that I think has gotten less attention is, the extremism of DeSantis's legislative agenda this year, and the you know moving to a six-week abortion ban, the permitless carry, the most extreme immigration bill passed in America potentially in a hundred years that just took effect in the last few days, that we're going to be getting horror stories from Florida playing out over the next year and a half. So even if he's not the nominee, there's still going to be things that Democrats are going to be able to run on based on his on his awful governorship, and so. I, and then you have the Supreme Court right <laughs> which is in very likelihood next spring, even though they there's a sense in my view, I think that they kind of moderated a little bit recognizing the election the backlash on abortion was significant that there's more it's more likely than not that they're going to produce a decision that's going to ca- remind everybody right before the election again about how out of control they are. And so there's just going to be a mountain of just terrible terrible news coming about republicans over the next year and a half now and they have no way of stopping it it's a, it's a it's part of the background of the election and it's why i'm so fundamentally optimistic because i just don't think people are going to go there i just i just don't think <clears throat> that this you know we've seen it now in three consecutive elections in the battleground we've litigated maga maga's lost three consecutive times people in the battleground have thought through these issues they're aware of what the who the republican party is and I think their die is cast in many ways. What happens inside the primary, who knows? But my guess is that Trump's going to be the nominee. And I think that what has to worry anyone who doesn't want Trump to be the nominee in the Republican Party is that, you know, everyone just rallied around him. They have rallied around him betraying the country and the documents. They rallied around him sexually assaulting a woman and getting convicted for it in New York. They've rallied around him on things that are so beyond uh, leading an insurrection, right? I mean, they've rallied around him among by, about some of the worst things that any politician's ever done in the history of the country. And now what it seems like is the defining issue of MAGA isn't an issue like abortion or gay rights. It's defending the leader of the tribe. And the fact that everyone in the Republican Party rallied to Trump in the last few weeks Where's the space now to take him on? Right. I mean, everyone just supported him. And so if you're an anti Trump candidate, your lane, your space just evaporated because now the central mission of MAGA is to protect the leader of the tribe. It isn't something else. And that's, I think, what's happened over the last few weeks, which means that it's going to become very difficult, I think, for Trump to be beat in the primary. And certainly, I think if he is the nominee, we should be able to win the election next year.
0: Uh, Well, there are a lot of remaining issues. How does the White House handle this? What about the role of the vice president? What about um, uh, uh, some of the uh, other uh, campaigns that may go on simultaneously that will uh, uh, drive this? Uh, And I want to talk about those. But this is the moment in the podcast where we take a break. We say goodbye to the folks who are not members. Uh, If you are a member, stand by. We'll be right back. Okay, so we're right back. Um, and uh, uh, Jenna, I do, I do want to sort of ask what advice you would give the Biden administration as they sort of look at this. Um, I think there's a belief um, among some in 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 Democratic Party circles, some very uh, strong Democrats, that the Biden administration has not been great at communications. That Biden has not been great at communications, that they have not played up uh, the role of the VP or used it properly. Um, You've been very eloquent on that issue, Uh, as you are on others. By the way, I'd want to say parenthetically, because I meant to say it earlier, uh, what you've been writing recently about the court and actually characterizing what we face there as a constitutional crisis, I think was an extremely important uh, position. But I saw going back to this other point. I, I saw a tweet earlier today. Uh, somebody was talking about you know how great Gretchen Whitmer would be, and Ron Klain, the former White House chief of staff, felt compelled to you know get on there and say, well, Gretchen Whitmer is great, but Joe Biden's the candidate, and you know Kamala Harris is an excellent VP, and let's focus on this. Um, and for those of us who believe that what's at stake is not just a bunch of a politicians' careers, but democracy in this country, you know, it would seem to me to be, you know, in the interest of the Democrats to turn down this static as soon as possible.
1: I get questions like this from readers all the time. Well, couldn't he get rid of, you know, Kamala Harris? Or wouldn't it be good to have a primary against Joe Biden? No, no, no. Grow up, people. This is it. You got a great legislative record to run on, run on it. And I think there is a tendency to, you know, maybe it's something in the progressive mindset. Maybe it's just people are incapable of accepting good news these days. They got a great record to run on and they should run on it and run on it strongly. And one of the things that I think they should be absolutely emphatic about is, It's not simply that Biden has created more jobs. It's not simply that inflation is down. Biden is transforming the American economy. He is transforming whole swaths of the American landscape by putting in hundreds of billions of dollars in public money and then in private money. He is transforming people's lives. And I think the magnitude of that accomplishment has not yet kind of permeated. And it is the job of Democrats to just show what it means to a place in what used to be called the Rust Belt when a new chips factory moves in or when a new electric battery plant moves in and you have tens of thousands of really good paying jobs. What does that do to a region of the country or a city? Um, And I think Democrats have to kind of own that. They have to get in with that. They have to show people what it means. Um, And I think because it is frankly so unusual that you go through such an infusion of effort and such a directed focus on um, investment in this country that people probably haven't seen anything like this. What Biden is doing is unique. We have not had an industrial policy in the United States before. And we've just hoped that organically, you know, businesses would invest and people would get jobs, we'd be kind of swept up in it all. But here we're actually trying, we're actually trying to improve people's lives to make um, them healthier, richer, um, more um, successful. So I think really embracing um, the Bidenomics, which I think the administration is really trying to do. Um, They had a rollout that lasted about a week, but then the Supreme Court came along and stepped on the message. But they got to go back to that and they got to just keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it. And I think the other part of it is that Like Simon says, they really have to stress, this is not a normal election. This is not a normal party. These people are nuts. They're irresponsible. If they were relatives, you'd have them institutionalized. This is crazy stuff. And to give these people power, to put these people in a position where they would be able to thwart the Ukraine's fight for survival, where they would be able to roll back um, all of the civil liberties that we have, not just some of them. It's nuts. It's just nuts. And I think there's obviously a problem in that the mainstream media normalizes this. It equates everything. It makes it seem like oh the Republicans say X, the Democrats say Y. And Democrats have to take that frame and shred it and say, there's only one sane choice here. There's only one real option for people who care about America and people who have any sense of how things work. And that's the Democratic Party for now. So I think they have to be unabashed. I think they have to embrace what they've done. Um, and I think they have to be as bold in their rhetoric as Republicans are in theirs. Um, Republicans have called Democrats, you know, anti-American, un-American for years. Where's the fervor back? Um, you want un-American? Un-American is people who try to overthrow the government. Un-American is people who rush into the arms of Vladimir Putin. So step it up, Democrats. Get a clue stop pining for the impossible. Yeah, I'd like, you know, the second coming of Abraham Lincoln to be president too, but it isn't happening. So move on, people. Move on. That
0: sounds like good advice for me, to, to me. Simon, I know you go and you talk to people in the White House about these things all the time. Is it just as easy as saying, well, listen to what Jen says?
1: <laughs>
2: um, well, first of all, I, I I just want to say amen to a lot of what she just said. And um I, look, the whole question about, right, what's been interesting is you're starting to see a legitimate debate now in the country about why it is people don't feel better about, you know, the economy, about the country, about each other. And I have this theory, right, that some of it is the complicity of the media, as, as Jen said, this sort of he said, she said, normalization bias, that's in our politics. But I also think that since Trump arrived, came down the escalator in 2015, MAGA and the Republicans have been a negative sentiment machine. They their their strategy is they want us to feel bad about our democracy, about America, about the American project, about our institutions, our leaders, each other. They want us to feel bad about everything. And it, you know, because what happens is that when you think the system has failed, that's when extremism succeeds, right? Extremists need the perception that the mainstream, the normies failed, and we've got to try something now radical and different. So Denigrating the country, talking it down, arguing, for example, that inflation was only caused by Joe Biden and that the Russians and the Saudis, for example, had no contribution to it over the last few months. All of this stuff, their central goal now, MAGA's central goal is to pump negative sentiment into our discourse to make us feel bad about everything. We have to become smarter about this as Democrats. We have to understand that part of our response and the way we defeat MAGA is by Putting positive sentiment back into our discourse and and crowding out the negative sentiment with a very loud, aggressive case for that we've made things better and having more confidence and faith that it's actually true. And I do think this, this sort of meta conversation about our discourse is something that we need to become, we need to make it more common. People need to understand that there are actors trying to manipulate our discourse who want Americans to feel bad about themselves and their country we can't let them win. And it's to me, at a tactical level, the way that we defeat MAGA at the end of the day is by telling a positive story about this country, eliciting patriotism and optimism, love of country. And I feel this every day when I talk to grassroots Democrats, which I do quite a bit, I'm just overwhelmed by the sense of love of country and patriotism that people feel. And we've got to do a better job at just going deep into that emotional core That people want to believe again in America, and they've been denied that by one of their two political parties, which is why the stakes of this election are so high, David, as you pointed out earlier. I think this is all doable stuff, right? The reason, again, I'm optimistic is that we have a very powerful case to make. We just got to go out and make it. And what the hell are they going to argue for, right? I mean, that they're going to, you know, that they really want their guy to not go to jail for betraying the country. I mean, that's their central argument they're taking in the American people or they're gonna ban books or they're gonna force ten year olds to have babies that of their rapists or they want more kids to die in schools. I mean, what's the Republican argument? It's absurd. And if we can't beat these guys, given where they are, you know, shame on us in many ways, because, you know, they have abandoned the center. They become a dangerous force. And we've just got to go out and make our case. And I think we're gonna have a good election next year.
0: Yeah, I think these are great points, you know, and I think aiming high, aiming to win these elections by a lot, working to win these elections by a lot, um, uh, uh, staying unified, um, uh, and uh, understanding the threat that the other side poses are all important. And I think this core issue of optimism, which people mocked Joe Biden for when he ran in 2020, um, is especially important. It would have been impossible to guess in 2020 that the us would be as strong as it is right. in the world strong that nato would be stronger than it is that russia would be as weak as it is that the united states would be able to get out of afghanistan and shift its focus to china that we'd be able to put together uh, a, a you know a balanced sound policy on that that we would be investing in our infrastructure after 50 years that we would be investing in uh, competitiveness, as as Jen was talking about, in brand new ways, in in shifting the, the 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 shift chip fabrication to the United States, to preparing us for next generation technological challenges like AI and so forth, by creating jobs in ways that no one thought possible, including today a remarkable job report. It's not just the Republicans are bad and the Republicans are a threat. America actually can be better and stronger and greater if we keep on this path. And I think that's an important thing. Now, when I speak to to people, almost inevitably, the comment that I get at the very, very end, and we just have a couple of minutes, and you probably get it too, is, well, what can I do about this? What what can I do? And frankly, with 18 months to go, now is the time, uh, I think, to plan and recognize that everybody can play a role. How do you answer the question, Jen, and then Simon?
1: Well, I wrote a book about this in uh, to some degree, which was uh, How Women Saved Democracy from Donald Trump. And that is you participate as a citizen. You not only vote, you volunteer for a campaign. You volunteer for a cause. You help get signatures for an uh, abortion uh initiative on the ballot. Um, you give your time and money to organizations that are fighting for constitutional rights. You run for office yourself. Um, you get out there and you participate at town halls. You do write letters to the editor, police speak. Be- polite. You write letters to um, newspapers and to writers when they play this game of moral equivalence. Again, be polite, please. Um, you write a letter that is individualized, not a form letter to your representative. Um, you get out there and you be a citizen. And um, when you band together and you get your friends and you get support from people like you, you make a difference. This notion that, you know, you're just going to let all this stuff roll over you and you're going to spend your time doom scrolling on, uh, you know, Twitter is very destructive. And that's what they really want. They want a sense of inevitability, a sense of um, resignation. And in fact, um, when Americans get out, look what they did. Look what the Democrats in Wisconsin did when they put their mind to winning that state Supreme Court race. They were organized down to the grassroots and they went out and they did it. So I think there are a zillion ways, including the ones I just mentioned, for people to go out and do it. But what you can't do is just say, woe is me, and sit back in, on your living room couch and, you know, shake your fist at uh, Fox News.
0: Ah, excellent.
1: To yeah, assign I mean, A
2: couple of things is that there's so many groups now that have sprung up to channel all of this frustration, anger, fear, optimism, patriotism into constructive action. It's really, there's been a citizen revolt in this country. I mean, people don't really understand how big the democratic and powerful the democratic grassroots has gotten. And so however you want to participate, whether it's through making phone calls or texting, you know, we now have technology that allows you to do that in any swing district in the country. You can export your labor into the most competitive battlegrounds. You can, of course, give money. But I also think, as Jen was saying earlier, we have to all do our part as sort of information warriors. You know, the story I tell is that in 1992, the war room, and when we think of the war room, it's like 20 sweaty kids drinking Red Bulls, getting screamed at by James Carville, producing videos, right? But now we need to think of the war room as two or three million people wired together, you know, spreading good information about the Democrats and Joe Biden through all their networks. And what I And it has to be both. It has to be traditional campaign activity, and it has to be this loudness and information warrior sensibility. And I'll give you an example, right? Tucker Carlson at his height reached 3 million people a night. If a million Democrats reach 10 people each a day through their networks, politely, as Jen said, respectfully, um, not, not annoyingly, but if they reach 10 people, that's 10 million people. We have more agency and power than we understand, as information warriors. We've got to take that part of our citizen engagement much more seriously. It's what they do. They're wired, they're networked, they're amplified. They take Trump's stuff, they spread it through their networks all the time. We need to do it too. And I think if we do, we can make enormous strides in closing what I call the loudness gap with the other side in the the next year and a half. It's really important.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I would just amplify that, um, which is... Everybody has a platform these days. Uh, in fact, troublingly, sometimes (laughs) we have to have 10 platforms because we, you know, there's, there's Twitter and there's threads and there's, you know, Mastodon and there's blue sky and and all those other things. Um, but the reality is even if you think you're, I'm not a big deal. I've only got 25 followers or 200 or a thousand followers or whatever it is, there is a network effect here. Imagine a thousand people. Imagine ten thousand people. Imagine a hundred thousand people all reaching out to their followers that way. It's many, 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 many times more powerful than Tucker Carlson. Um, and uh, I, you know, I think taking back and owning that power, owning that optimism, and owning the opportunity here is really the the the, the great uh, uh, challenge and opportunity that lies ahead in 2024. For now, I'm just going to have to say we're going to um, come back and continue these discussions, hopefully with Jen um, and with Simon. But when they're not on this show, uh, listen to Jen's podcast, read Jen's columns in the Washington Post, read everything that Simon's got going on out there, um, and uh, uh, and you will be well informed. And that's a good place to start as well. So thank you, Jen. Thank you, Simon. Thank you everybody for listening, uh, and, uh, we'll be
2: back with more, uh, real soon. Bye bye.